preparing. So we're going to, to pick up in a theme series uh, from 1 John, uh, John's first uh, letter to the churches, a pastoral letter towards the end of the, the first century. And we're going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 2. It'll be on the screen, um, but I encourage you to hear it as, and read it along or find it in your Bible. Are you ready? Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We are working our way through 1 John. Philip began the series in uh, August, and he felt moved by, in his kind of thinking and preparing for one of our open-air services, to Recognize the calling of Peter was to come follow, and uh, he did whilst he was fishing. But the call to John, who wrote this letter, was whilst John was mending nets. And as Philip kind of reflected on that, there was this sense of, of the timeliness of mending nets, of, of spending time to, to have that which may have become frayed or damaged or have been neglected, to be restored and challenged and re, uh, refined, rebuilt, mended, uh, particularly coming, coming out of COVID. And recognizing that, that John, uh, as an evangelist, as a gospel writer, is really profound about, uh, about the centrality of Jesus. He writes these things such that we should believe. Talks about um, you know, that, that, that really important for, for people to believe. But also... He has a real heart for the believers. 
that the Gospel of John itself is, is very different to the other three. And it, it, there's a lovely section after chapter 13 about Jesus' prayer for the disciples, for the church, for what's to come. That sense of, of being upheld by the Lord, of being taught about the Holy Spirit, of being made aware what was to come so that we aren't caught out or by surprise. Really emphasizes how much we're loved. Remember that bit when Jesus washes the disciples' feet? And Jesus said, knowing the full extent of who he was, he showed them the extent of his love and washed their feet. And out of that comes these three pastoral letters that he writes, one John creatively and two John and, no guessing, no surprises, three John, uh, his pastoral letters, and then obviously the, the revelation that then comes at the end of the New Testament. Again, recorded by John. So I kind of titled this message On Track. On Track with this idea and this uh, motif of mending nets. But keeping on track as believers, as a church, in the, in the points of challenge. Towards the end of the first century, John was the last of the apostles, the eyewitnesses, who had been with Jesus for those three years. The, uh, there was a changing of the era. There was a kind of bold expectancy in the early church that Jesus was returning. He'd, they'd seen him ascend in the clouds. They'd seen, they'd heard his last words that I, I, I'm coming soon. And they, they said, I will return as I have departed. And the king, all things will be wound up. All authority in heaven and earth is his. And there was that kind of eager expectancy, waiting. But as year went, rolled into year and decade into decade, and as those followers grew older and were lost to the early church. I think there was a sort of ambiguity that began to set in of saying, what's happened? Why the delay? Is there a problem? Was it correct in the first place? There's that sense always in believers about Christ triumphant. We know that he is risen. I hope you know that he is risen, that the tomb is empty, that he's conquered death and conquered the grave and conquered Satan and risen and is reigning at the center of things. I'm hoping you know that uh, as a church and as a family. We know that, don't we? Christ triumphant. But if we're honest and real often, that that is always held against the struggle of the really. Oh, I mean, the struggle of the really he is triumphant, but we, we've just heard and we hear regularly from the persecuted church, where's the triumph sometimes? Where's the triumph in the, in the extended praying that we may do for years or, or crying out earnestly or seeking the Lord and fasting? And, and it just seems no change happens. Christ triumphant? Really? We set out with really strong nets. We come with eagerness and vigor and Again and again and again, we let them and we think there's so few fish to catch. Really? John is writing in that ambiguity of Christ triumphant, always. But how do we contend when things don't go as we expect or we hope 
or we have in our own uh, kind of mindset. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be reigning and ruling in my life. And again and again, we stumble and let him down. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord of this church. And and we worship him in wonderful songs and, and find that actually we don't love each other quite as we would hope. And people fall out. Have you noticed that? And we think, oh, it's, it's just a bit pie in the sky, isn't it? John would want to help us to know the reality, to keep on track, to know that Christ is triumphant. But we live in this period where there is opposition, a battle, as it's phrased sometimes, where there is uh, this ambiguity, uh, the now and the not yet, that we live in this last age hopefully looking forward to his return, but knowing sometimes it is tough. Keep on track. Just before Philip uh, went to Lebanon after his service last week as he preached, we were on the door, and he said, oh, you've got the Antichrist next week. Good luck with that. (laughs) I said, thanks, Phil. Indeed, someone asked me, uh, I was uh, on a journey with them uh, recently, uh, someone in their 20s and kind of exploring faith and thinking through what it means to have grown up with faith and find their own faith. And um, we were journeying, driving along for a bit, and uh, he he said to me, "Uh, do you believe in the Antichrist? Well, I said, I believe in Jesus, uh, you know, because I wanted to distinguish believing in the, I believe in the Antichrist. That's a kind of um, strange phrase to say, isn't it? But I... I acknowledge the reality of the Antichrist. And then he said to me, "Um, do you believe that the Antichrist has come or who is it? I think he'd been Googling a little bit and he had his own views. You don't have to be around long, do you, to to come up with people who have been labeled the Antichrist. If you are around zealous Protestants, either of this generation or of previous ones, you will hear very quickly, probably, that they would describe this or that or the current Catholic Pope as the Antichrist, the seat of everything wrong. Mm, not convinced. Or perhaps it's a politician. I did a, a little Google search, thank you, Google, uh, that um, in 2014, uh, Hillary Clinton got that label, and uh, people were very adamant that she was the Antichrist. And indeed, it doesn't take long to find a particular dictator or a particular religious leader or some other person to hit that news, whether it's now or if you read back in church history, lots of people, are they the Antichrist? When John was writing in Asia Minor, as we've already heard, there were lots of versions of Jesus that the Apostle John and those uh, apostles who had taught and and had uh, written the letters and had uh, had gathered together the the true sayings and the experiences of of Jesus and, and what they had seen and heard and been taught in the Gospels, these things, the apostles' teaching, were central to the life of the early church. But as time progressed... There were those who hadn't received uh, or kind of uh, hadn't had that teaching or who, who thought, uh, were thinking about it and couldn't quite see how it worked and started to deviate from the teaching of the apostles or come up with other ideas 
about Jesus, about who he was, and about what he accomplished. It gets called the Christian heresies because they're distortions of the apostolic truth that we've received. Corinthians, one of those early ones, talked about the anointed Christ as the Jesus, the human one, but there was also the Christ, the divine one, and saw them as kind of two separates. It's a bit like in the early church, as time went on and people were quizzical and, uh, and they, they kind of, you know those places, fairgrounds and, and um, places, you go to the Hall of Mirrors. You know, when you go in and, and uh, you suddenly look really thin and slim on one aspect. And then you turn to the other and you look kind of like dumpy and pot-bellied in, in another one. Or, you know, oh, there's that, that kind of distortion. It's an image of you, but it is being, you're being tricked into something of a distortion. This is what happens with heresies. They take that which is true and distort it and alter it. And so it becomes quite hard when something's amplified or exaggerated or distorted. It seems kind of nice. There's something appealing about it. And yet John says no. John uses this phrase of the Antichrist five times in his letters. Interesting that none of the other authors of the New Testament use this word, the Antichrist. It's just one of the things from John. What is John driving at? Well, anti can mean um, a particular thing in our own understanding. If I said to you, uh, what is anti-freeze? You'd go, it's against freezing, wouldn't you? It's opposed to freezing. Or if I said to you, uh, anti-social, maybe your children or your neighbors uh, are anti-social. They are kind of like being anti-good behavior, aren't they? They're being opposed to it. Uh, anti-antiseptic, anti-aging, anti-aircraft, something that is opposed to. That's how we tend to use it. But in the, the Greek lang language, there is also um, a kind of different nuance to that prefix, anti. And it means instead of. Rather than as opposed to directly, it can mean in place of or instead of. So as John is speaking to the early church and helping them to, to be strong, to be on track, to be able to be equipped, to deal with the challenges that are there before them in the faith of what should we believe, how should we believe it, how should we practice faith, he is saying there are ideas and proponents talking about ways of being Christian, inverted commas, that actually ends up with you being an enemy of Christ because it is instead of the truth. It's, it's a bit like saying, here's something, but we're going to take some bricks out. Here's what God is instructed, but we're going to remold it because we don't like what God has done. We'll refashion it. We'll replace certain things. We will restructure it because it seems better to us instead of. Of course, the Antichrist, in the personification of what that means, is against everything that Jesus stands for. But when John writes, I don't know if you noticed in the beginning, um, he, in verse 18, 
You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. I think what he's driving at is, is that there are those who are taking the gospel and tweaking it, changing it, reforming it, causing it to be something instead of the truth revealed of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, John is really strict here and clear. He says, at the heart of our belief, the heart of being a church, the heart of being a disciple, everything depends on what a person believes about Jesus Christ. Full stop. Everything depends upon what a person believes about Jesus of Nazareth. Was he the Son of God? Is he the Christ? Was he sent from the Father to reveal to us what true humanity looks like and, and what the Father is like? And is he that revelation from God? Or are there others? Are there other ways to God? Is it solely in Jesus? Is it exclusive? I mean, we live in a culture that says, that's a little bit, a bit rude, isn't it? A bit blunt. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one truth. There's only one way. For John, it's clear cut. It's interesting that John wrote that, didn't he? Chapter 14. The way, the truth, and the life. Philip sometimes talks about the Alpha courses that he runs, and, uh, and we will have one soon again. Brilliant course to be part of. And he says over the course of running 50-plus courses, he's seen a shift even in the 25 years of running them here. And he says that Jesus is becoming more and more the stumbling block. People say things like, well, I can understand God the Father, and I have a relationship with God, but where does Jesus fit in? And it's almost like saying, I'm spiritual, and I can relate to God the Father, who is spirit, and who loves me, but Jesus will just park over here because he seems a little bit exclusive, or a little bit radical, or I don't really get him. John would say that everything depends upon Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember in the Gospels, the key question in all the, the stories, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, maybe a prophet or a good teacher. Maybe you're one of the, the old ones come back to help us again. Peter recorded, got it, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bingo! Wasn't Jesus' word. Uh, spot on. You see, if someone doesn't believe this about Jesus, then they can't be in a right relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Does he tell the truth or not? If Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, and yet someone says, well, I, I we'll bypass Jesus. I, can, I don't really need him anymore. They can't be in a right relationship with God the Father if they're denying the, 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 the whole basis upon which that fellowship with the Father exists. We only come to the Father through Jesus. 
Do you see that? We can't know the Father. Jesus asked that. It's John again in the gospel. Show us the Father. Well, Jesus says, if you see me, you, you see him. Absolutely foundational for us. We mustn't loose the moorings that hold us to him. John is really strong here. He says, did you hear it? That, that we, we haven't, if we, if we deny the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Slightly extending what John would say, please don't take this as heresy, but I think I could uh, back this up quite strongly. To deny the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, not only is to deny the first person of the Trinity, the Father, but would also be denying the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, because the Spirit leads us to truth, to Jesus. We wouldn't have this, we wouldn't know the Spirit without Jesus, and then without the Spirit, we can't know Jesus, and the Spirit leads us to Jesus, and Jesus lets us be in full relationship with our Heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may think this is very doctrinal, Edward, this morning, but this stuff matters, keeps us on track. There's so much around us which is seeking to fray the nets. And by fraying the nets, we become inefficient and ineffective in who we are intended to be and the purposes that Christ has called us for. Jesus said in Matthew 24, false, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It wasn't just for them and them, for now. Hear how John addresses us again and again, twice in the passages I've read. Dear children, John, with an overwhelming heart of love for us, is saying, dear family, dear children, dear children of God, I hope you know this to keep you on track. Don't be surprised that there are different versions of Jesus at that time as people sought to take advantage for their own gain in one form or another. Or would say, if you follow, following that Jesus, it leads to dishonor and disreputable kind of character. A brilliant book by Tom Holland. I don't know if you've read it called Dominion. It's a long book. I listened to it in a car and it was 28 hours. I didn't listen to it in one drive because we can't do that in England, can we? I'd have to be in the States or somewhere for a 28-hour drive. But I listened to it over a series of journeys. It's brilliant. And it talks about how Christianity has influenced the whole of Western culture and we're seeped in the gospel. But he starts in the scandal, that even if you read the introduction, brilliant, the scandal of the cross of Jesus being crucified outside Jerusalem, the horror and the shock and the antipathy and the anathema of that for the Roman culture, criminals and the, the completely defeated were crucified. And to claim that the Christian God, the Son of God, should, be, should have that happen to them is the most ridiculous thing anyone would have heard of. The king of the universe crucified. Scandal. Stumbling block. And Jesus would say, come follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. 
That's a hard walk. And yet, that's the way of Jesus. And yet, because of that, because it's so hard, we sort of twist and distort. We, we start to concoct a different way that says, actually, he'll just bring peace and comfort. Actually, he will just uh, look after you and favor you if you live this particular way. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work to get us to be instead of Jesus and to oppose all that he did and is doing. What does the spirit of the Antichrist or the anti-Jesus look like? When we start to fashion Jesus of our own making, John challenges. Don't be wooed by them. Keep on track. How? Hold to the apostles' teaching. I encourage you and urge you to read particularly the Gospels and the New Testament. Not saying don't read the Old. We find Jesus there and the truth of the kingdom. Absolutely. But try and read the Gospels often. And, and try and read them. It's hard to do, but it's easy to say, with fresh eyes. I was talking to a friend recently and doing a bit of mentoring, and he was reading through Acts again. And he was saying, oh, I've read it, and I've read the stories. And I said, let's find a fresh way of reading it then. And we talked through some options. And he's been messaging me saying, oh yeah, I'm finding freshness in this. But keep with the scriptures. Keep one of the antidotes, one of the things to keep close to Jesus, to keep getting to know him, to keep trusting him, to keep hold of his word and stepping out in it and seeing that he is true to his word. Not just as an academic thing, not just as a wonderful discipleship devotional thing, but such that we, get, we fall in love with Jesus. The Scriptures point us to him. Read the Gospels. Ask the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, the, the teacher to help us, uh, to lead us into all truth. Keep, if we want to keep Jesus front and center and, and, and him truly, seek first the kingdom of God. Gosh, that's a hard one to do. But so essential. It's so easy to start to seek something else. And we will become instead of. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added. Don't get folded into a niche just with like-minded Christians. A kind of spiritual echo chamber or a group think bubble. It's so easy to just side with those who we like and read the blogs that confirm our own things. I'm not, I'm not saying find the heretics, that's not what I'm saying, but there's such a richness amongst the worldwide church about who Jesus is that we are so enriched by that. Read some biographies of Christians before. Read some, uh, uh, in, encourage, get to know some people in the fellowship here and say, how, how have you journeyed with Jesus? What have you seen? How have you walked with him year upon year? What can I learn from you about Jesus? Got stuck with the scriptures? Ask someone to help find a fresh way. Particularly in our culture today, we can so become entrapped by one way of thinking. We get polarized around a specific issue or make Jesus fit our cause. Mikhail Gorbachev in 1992, writing for the Daily Telegraph, said Jesus was the first socialist. 
who is adopting and conforming Jesus to his own agenda. The spirit of the Antichrist. I'm not saying Gorbachev was the Antichrist, don't hear that. But it's easy how we take something of Jesus, something true, and make it fit what we want. It's so easy. We domesticate Jesus. Someone said something like this, didn't they? They said, it's not that the Gospels have been, or the, the Bible's been tried and found to be untrue. It's just found to be too difficult at times. Slightly wrong quote there, but you get the drift. Drift. It's easy to become entrenched, to domesticate him, to make him like one of us. Of course, he was and is one of us, fully human. The incarnation underlines that most essentially, gives us no wiggle room. But he's also divine, fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. But what John is driving at is that the spirit of the Antichrist, that which would seek to uh, not just oppose, but instead of, would turn us all into Antichrist, worshipping little versions of ourselves. We appropriate Jesus, historically in the West, sadly, in certain aspects. Have you noticed how if you go to an art gallery, Jesus isn't portrayed as Jewish and Middle Eastern? He's got blue eyes and sometimes blonde hair and a very pale complexion. Well, for artistic reasons and to kind of make people connect, perhaps, but I think something else was going on. The outcome of that was an ideology that saw Western Europeans particularly as superior. And Jesus couldn't be Middle Eastern because white Europeans were superior. So over time, a transformation, a co-opting, and instead of, and out of that comes the horrors in so many ways of racism and the deep challenges of colonialism, of seeing the Western culture as must be enforced. As a church in Middle England, it's, it's easy to forget Jesus' passion and heart for the sink estates of our communities or the Samaritans. As a charismatic myself, it's, it's so wonderful to talk about the presence of God and his imminence and, and how he's with us and to listen to his voice he, and to hear his voice. But I must admit that if we forget his transcendence and his wonderful almightiness and his otherness, we kind of make Jesus our mate. And he is our friend and he is our brother, but he's also our king and we bow before him. The challenge of God when he seems absent and distant and, and we, our prayers go unanswered and sometimes the desert experience and, uh, and we think, where is God? Has he abandoned me? No. This is the experience we sometimes go through. But to, to create a Jesus fashion solely that says, well, you must have lost your faith or, or sinned in some way, changes the goalposts. Someone from our church wrote to us in the last year and said she was finding really, really difficult. She'd never had that feeling of the Holy Spirit and therefore concluded that the, the Lord, the Father, didn't like her. 
Soul Survivor with the youth, that sense of charismatic and people encountering the God, but uh, encountering the living God, but again and again, some of them would kind of not experience that and go, why has God forgotten me? Why has he passed over me? Why does he leave me out? Because the gospel is bigger than just a feeling of the Holy Spirit. Because if we reduce or replace the fullness of who Jesus is to, to a narrow definition of what we've come to be comfortable with, we live with the spirit of the Antichrist. In our worship songs, are they samey, all the same? Or do we have a breadth and a depth? Just in the last few weeks, Sally's really helped us to open up the archived songs from the 80s and 90s. Some were a bit cheesy, but some are beautiful. To rediscover the awe and the transcendence and the beauty of God. Has faith become a fatigue or, or, or a bit boring, stale? It's not Jesus that's become stale. In a book, great book, I encourage you to to read it by Richard Foster called Living Waters, Streams of Living Waters. He, he talks about the six, six dimensions of faith and practice described in the history of the church over 2,000 years. And the reason he does this is to say, so often we find the comfortable place, evangelicalism, daily devotions, Bible study, uh, kind of like setting aside the quiet time. Brilliant, he says, but it's not the only way of walking with Jesus. If we see it as the only way, then we can marginalize so many or we can can be stuck. There's more to following him, to relating to him in the disciplines we can grow in. So he says that there there are these six streams. He talks about the contemplatives, those people who have a prayer filled life, the life of holiness and virtuous life. Or there's the charismatics, those spiritually empowered ones. Or there's the life of social justice, that which is marked out by compassionate living. Or the evangelical, the word-centered life. And finally, he talks about the incarnational or sacramental life. He's not saying take your pick and live in it. He's saying there are streams of tradition which enrich us to help us get to know Jesus who's in all of them. Don't divide and partition and say, they're my club Because people who profess and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, the true Son of God, are our sisters and brothers from whom we can walk with and learn from and fellowship together. Just a small note at the end. In verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you. I'm not preaching myself out of a job. <laughs> He's not saying true believers don't need anyone else. You've got it in you. What uh, John is, is not downplaying the need for Bible teachers. In fact, his whole letter, the Gospels, that which he would write to the churches, is full of Bible teaching. And he, he encourages and expects them to, to learn from him. What he is countering is those who say, you don't need them. You just need this special spiritual experience. You know, just uh, come to me and I'll give you the secret knowledge of those who would claim, well, if you pay enough or you devote yourself sufficiently to me, then I will let you in. 
or those who would claim they've had such a spiritual encounter that it's marked them on a different course from, from what the rest of the body of Christ know to be true. He's saying the witness of the Spirit inside us helps us know that. Keep on track, sisters and brothers, dear children. Major on Jesus. Keep falling in love with him. And from that flows so much. May those aspects of our life, that part of our net which needs mending, be strengthened in his name. Amen.